This is Dave, and I'm here with Ethan, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast, episode 171-inch. On this episode, we dig deep into my archives, and we air part one of my interview with Dr. Demento from August 2015. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. It's a podcast about Weird Al. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. You don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. Welcome, everybody, to episode 171 inch, and welcome, everybody, to September. Ah, yes, September. That means the summer's over, and we can finally start wearing white again. No, Ethan, the saying is not to wear white after Labor Day. Oh, crud. I always mix that up. Well, don't worry about it and just do what I do and take all of your fashion advice from Weird Al lyrics. You know, Perform This Way has a lot of really good pointers, including the one about wearing white after Labor Day. Oh, good call, Dave. Thanks for that reminder. I totally should be getting all my fashion advice from Weird Al. By the way, can we talk about something from our last episode? Sure, but let me guess. You want to listen back to the entire last episode where we watch the Weird the Al Yankovic story trailer with UH Jeff and dissect it piece by piece like it's Avengers Endgame and then dissect our episode piece by piece like it's the Zapruder film. Now that would be kind of fun. But I'm not sure we have time for all of that in addition to the Dr. Demento interview that we're going to hear this episode. But actually, I wanted to talk about the big news that Grammy Award winning Jim Kimo West was getting ready to drop last week. Oh, yeah, we have a huge update to share on that. So without further ado, it's time for what's happening in Grammy Award winning Jim Kimo West related news. Last episode, we shared the cryptic teaser that the Grammy Award-winning Jim Kimo West shared with his email list about the big news and a hint that was coming last week. Well, we still haven't seen any news of this announcement or the hint, and when reached for comment on the matter, Grammy Award-winning Jim Kimo West said, Sorry, slight delay, lol. You can always trust Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast as the number one source for breaking Jim Kimo West-related news as it develops in real time. And now, in Burrito Burrito-related news... This episode is brought to you in part by vegan burrito restaurant Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York, home of the two-pound double-wrapped in a quesadilla Burrito Burrito and Wizard Burger in Albany, New York. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito your Burrito Burrito, or hop on over to Wizard Burger for mouth-watering, loaded, dare I say beefy, vegan burgers. From Troy to Albany to Uranus, Burrito Burrito and Wizard Burger feed the hungry with out-of-this-world plant-based real food, always vegan style. Visit BurritoSquared.com and WizardBurger.com to order ahead. And now it's time for what's happening in Weird Al related news. What's happening in Weird Al related news is brought to you in part by Well, Well, Well and the true legends of the once great forum, Wowway, in accordance with support for the rights of gays and LGBTQ plus and people who wash their hands regularly. Thanks, Mark Heidenreich, for the sponsorship. From a source close to New York Comic Con, we have been told that Weird Al will not be appearing in person at the Weird Panel at 4 p.m. on October 9th, but instead will be zooming in due to his tour schedule. 
It's our understanding that Daniel Radcliffe, Evan Rachel Wood, and Eric Appel will all be there in person. Also, we share in the disappointment of Weird Al fans across the globe that Ethan and I will not be the ones hosting this panel. We agree that this is an oversight, and we too hope that it will be rectified. Last weekend, Al tweeted out, It amuses me to no end that this is currently the number three Google search under my name, along with a screenshot showing Weird Al and Madonna showing up as a search suggestion. This comes just days after our very own Ethan Ullman mentioned that it was trending on episode 170 inch of Dave and Ethan's 2000 inch Weird Al podcast. Is that a coincidence? Now this next Weird Al related news item comes from my very own grandma. Oh, your grandma, the one who recorded a Strings Attached bonus centimeter episode with you. No, my other grandma. Oh, in that case, please, we must hear this news. On the Game Show Network, they are currently airing reruns of the Michael Strahan-hosted $100,000 Pyramid Game Show. The promos for the show on the network feature a clip of Weird Al from his appearance on season one of the show. Very, very cool. You know, I still think that Weird Al was robbed on that show. Really? Why do you say that, Dave? Well, he should have been the one to win the money, not the contestants. If you're interested in seeing Weird Al's appearance on the $100,000 Pyramid, we were able to verify that his episode is currently available to watch on Hulu. This one goes out to all the Weird Al collectors. This month's issue of Bust Magazine features a piece on Weird Al, and his name is on the cover. The issue is the one with Regina Hall on the cover. But anyway, I was kind of thinking, what is Bust all about? Is it like people getting arrested? Actually, I think it has something to do with... And finally, as we previously reported, Weird, the Al Yankovic story, will make its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival tomorrow, Thursday, September 8th. The film will make its premiere at the Royal Alexandra Theatre as part of the Toronto International Film Festival's Midnight Madness series. And it's expected to feature a Q&A with some of the stars and creatives behind the film. Now, there are two additional public showings scheduled for the festival, one of which happens the following day, Friday, September 9th, and the other on September 18th. And as of this recording, all three screenings are sold out. Nonetheless, we are thrilled to announce that both Dave and I have secured tickets to the midnight premiere. We are very, very excited to finally see this film that we've been talking about for months. Now, don't worry. We'll definitely tell you all about what it was like to attend the world premiere of Weird the Al Yankovic Story. Of course, when the timing is right. And don't worry, we will continue to keep all of our Inch episodes spoiler-free until at least November 4th, when the film is more widely available to the public. This past week, the real Dr. Demento tweeted a link to the Weird the Al Yankovic Story trailer, along with the message, Rain Wilson shows the world my true dementia. To celebrate Dr. Demento and Rain Wilson's portrayal of him in Weird the Al Yankovic Story, Ethan has agreed to share another one of his interviews from his former radio show, Alternative to Sleeping with Ethan Allman. So Ethan, what can you tell us about this interview with Dr. Demento? So Alternative to Sleeping was my radio show when I was in college and for a few years following, and I hosted it for nearly seven years. So along with interviewing comedians and comedy musicians and other celebrities, I would also play funny music and recordings of stand-up comedy each week. 
So in 2015, when I did decide to end Alternative to Sleeping, the idea came to me to ask Dr. Demento himself to be on the final episode ever. Without Dr. Demento leading the way and playing funny music on the radio, and essentially creating the format that I was using, there was no way there could have been an alternative to sleeping with Ethan Ullman. I thought it would be incredibly apropos to have my final interview ever be with the man himself. All right, Ethan, you recorded this seven years ago back in August 2015, and it aired on the final episode of your radio show. I was so very excited to hear this. Take it away, 2015 Ethan, with part one of your interview with Dr. Demento. You're listening to Alternative to Sleeping with Ethan Ullman here in WCDB Albany 90.9 FM and Comedy Pipe Radio. And I'm very excited to welcome, this guy is the inventor of comedy radio, so the most apropos final guest ever. There's no one better than the great, the legendary Dr. Demento. How's it going, Dr. D? Oh, real fine. Woo! Woo! Wind up your radio. Hello, Albany. Hello, Comedy Pipe Radio. Hello, Ethan. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, really, truly an honor to be speaking with you. Uh, same here, Ethan. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so I've been doing the show for seven years. Not not quite as long as, as you've been doing your show, uh, but um, I certainly wouldn't have been here without you pioneering the comedy radio genre. Well, I'm glad to help launch your career then. <laughs> You've launched many careers, including Weird Al's, um, and I, I do mm -hmm. want to speak about that later, but um, sure. I, I guess I wanted to, I kind of have a timeline I wanted to go through. I have some questions. Um, I guess first, let's just get this out of the way. Uh, for those listening, where, where did the name Dr. Demento come from, and where did the idea for your radio show come from? Well, uh, it started out as... Uh, a rare oldie show and I found after a while that the more novelty records that I played things like the purple people eater and uh, transfusion and they're coming to take me away haha -ha, to the funny farm the more <laughs> things like that that I played the more popular the show seemed to be so I thought well I think I'm I'm on to something so I'm, I'm gonna run with that uh, and the name uh, came from a fellow named uh, Stephen Siegel, a.k.a. the obscene Stephen Clean. Uh, I happened to get to know him uh, through some mutual friends, and uh, he had he, he was a disc jockey in uh, Pasadena, right outside Los Angeles, and he invited me to the station he was on, and uh, that was favorably received. There were lots of calls saying, bring him on again, or things like that, and, and he gave me the name. Uh, he came oh, up wow. with the name Dr. Demento. He, if you ask him, he'll say that he first thought of it uh, when he was uh, hanging out with Peter Wolf, who was the lead singer of the Jay Giles band that was very popular for many years, and they were good friends. And so uh, Stephen gives him part credit for thinking up the name. And it just stuck. Did you start using it immediately? It just stuck, yeah. Uh, Stephen started using it when he introduced me. Before I had my own show, I okay. was a guest on his show quite a few times. It was kind of a regular thing. And and about the fourth time I was on with him, he just said, and now here's Dr. Demento. And it just stuck. <laughs> he, he did not ask me first if, if, if I wanted to be Dr. Demento. <laughs> but you liked it. You liked the name? Yeah. Okay. It stuck. Yeah. yeah. For, for better or worse and mostly for better. Now, I, I haven't uh, heard of any other um, 
DJ before you playing the novelty comedy music strictly. Is there was there anyone that you had listened to or heard heard of before you started Nobody doing it? really influenced me in terms of doing it. Uh, I just knew that I wanted to play records for people. Uh, right. There were some people who played comedy records on the air before me. The uh, best known, uh, mostly in just in the Los Angeles area, was a guy named Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. He made a few records, so uh, he, he's not totally forgotten. But uh, he had a show in the 1940s and 50s where he played a lot of comedy records. Oh, okay. He played old stuff, stuff that was old then. Right. He also made some records uh, of his own that, that were not national hits, but uh, they're still around. Now, when when you started to um, to transition from the uh, the rarities rock stuff into the novelty comedy stuff, were there any road bumps from program managers or program directors? Um, uh, no, I was on a free form station. Okay, uh, that was a brief era in the history of radio where even on commercial stations, just about anything went on certain stations. They called it underground radio, progressive radio, free form radio. There were lots of names for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were there were a few stations around the country. Uh, probably the best known one on the East Coast was WBCN in Boston, and. Uh, in, in our town, it was KPPC in Pasadena, and that's where I was lucky enough to uh, catch on. And uh, really, before management knew it, I'd kind of evolved <laughs> to doing funny stuff. And as long as it got a good reaction and uh, people listened, they were fine with it. So occasionally there would be objections to certain things that I played. Not very often, but it, it happened. Uh, but uh, they, they certainly went along with the idea of playing uh, funny stuff in general. As far as other disc jockeys, did uh, did you have like a was there a lack of respect because you weren't playing, you know the the typical stuff? Uh, not really. Never ran into that. No, I didn't feel it was it was something different and something that most of the people who tuned in. I mean, either they rejected it right away and went back to listening to Led <laughs> Zeppelin, or right. or they loved it. it. It seemed that way. You um you started um as a. You were a DJ in college in yes. Portland, Oregon, yeah. Reed College. That's right. So I became the station manager. It's a very small station. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Reed is a relatively small college, and, and the station was not really a big deal, but uh, a, a lot of people had fun with it, uh, and I certainly did. When I started there, the station played mostly classical music. Okay. And uh, during the time that I was there, it evolved to being a more freeform. Now, this was the early 60s, before there were any real freeform commercial stations. There were certainly some other wacky shows on college and non-commercial radio at that time. But uh, basically, the Dr. Domeno show developed in a vacuum. It, it, it evolved. The listeners, mm-hmm. uh, I, I followed what the listeners wanted to hear. And there seemed to be a trend after a while in favor of the... Uh, things that were called novelty records at that time, uh, like the ones I just mentioned. <laughs> right. Uh, and I, I gradually expanded it to other forms of comedy uh, that were on records, such as Tom Lehrer or Alan Sherman, uh, and then Frank Zappa, of course. Of course, on that station, they played Frank Zappa all the time. It wasn't just me. Right. Because it was hmm. a crazy freeform station. <laughs> And uh, Zappa was just kind of launching his career, uh, and he was based in Los Angeles, so we we were all very much in touch with Frank Zappa and his fans. 
Now, you first knew that you wanted to get into radio at a young age when you started collecting records? Yeah, I started collecting records, and then at our high school, we would have record hops, sock hops, because we danced in the gym and they didn't want to mark up the floor with street shoes, so we (laughs) danced in our socks. That was common at a lot of schools in those days, but uh, we had our sock hops, and uh, we had a relatively small high school, so uh, the, the school did not bring in disc jockeys from the local AM Top 40 stations. Instead, right. uh, we just students would bring their own records and play them. And uh, uh, when I got to be a, a junior, I, I, by that time, I had the biggest record collection, so I was usually the guy who played the records. And I didn't talk much. My talking was limited to dedications. We sold dedications for a dime. Uh, oh, okay. You, you could pay a dime and i'd say uh, now for bill and judy here's confidential by sunny night <laughs> and uh, that's about all the talking that i would do in those days but uh, uh, in college radio i got to do more talking different things uh, we were a classical station and now here is beethoven's symphony number no. four arturo <laughs> toscanini and the nbc symphony orchestra you know trying trying to be restrained and dignified right. and uh, then i i got to playing <laughs> blues I, I was a big blues fan even back then muddy waters and jimmy reed and that kind of thing so i had a show a blues show and then i had a folk music unlimited show wow. because those were the days of the folk boom right so of course, everybody remembers who, who went through that era remembers the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary, but uh, I tended to play more uh, either people like Pete Seeger or I would play real traditional music from, from the mountains and from the deep south. Uh, more and more of that was becoming available on records, so that's what I'd play. So that's, that was me uh, in college at uh, KRRC, Reed College Radio. Mm-hmm. And uh, I became the student manager of the station uh, because I seemed to have more enthusiasm for it than, than the other kids did. So hmm. so that was how I started in radio. When you were um, a young boy around 12, you started collecting the, the 78s. Um, did, yeah. you, did you know what you were looking for or were you kind of just experimenting? Uh, looking at cover art it was mostly trial and error i knew yeah. i knew a little bit uh you know my mother had grown up in the 20s and 30s and she remembered songs from that era and uh, she had told me about some of those she bought me a book the history of popular music in america which was written in 1947 so it told the story of pop music from the 19th century up to that time and uh, i devoured that and started looking for some of the songs that were mentioned in that book and uh, I, I also had a couple of books about jazz, so I'd look for Louis Armstrong and Bix Spiderbeck and people like that, hmm. and occasionally find some. And uh, read, I read what I could find about lots of different kinds of music. Uh, nowadays, there is just so much information. You can learn just about anything you want to know right. about older music, but that was not true in those days before the Internet. There were mm-hmm. only a few books about uh, older forms of pop music, blues and jazz, and, and most of them, frankly, were not that great, but uh, you, you get a little idea of what was going on. And uh, so so I'd study that, and through trial and error, the Salvation Army sold uh, 78s for a nickel apiece. And uh, so 
I could afford. I usually spent about a dollar a week at the hmm. Salvation Army, so that's wow. 20 records. Plus, they'd give me ones that were cracked or real beat up or something like that. So uh, it was it was trial and error. Uh, if I liked something, I looked for, for more that were like that. Right. So Is... all, all kinds of music. There was popular, classical, semi-classical, and uh, music from... Uh, the various immigrant groups that had come in, uh, uh, Minneapolis, lots of Scandinavians and Germans and Poles. So I'd, I'd find music from those cultures. Was that where you first uh, were introduced to the novelty music or did that come later on? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the first novelty records I had, uh, well, there were two things. Uh, Spike Jones. he was very popular in the 1940s. He was a, a big band leader. He sold lots of records. He was famous. Uh, and so my dad brought home some records of Spike Jones. Those were certainly the first novelty records, the first funny records that I heard. Cocktails for Two and the William Tell Overture and mm-hmm. so on by Spike Jones. And then you'd hear novelty songs on the radio. In the 40s, there was uh, uh, The Two Fat Polka by Arthur Godfrey, for instance, and uh, The Thing by Phil Harris was huge in 1950 when I was nine years old. Uh, oh, you'll never get rid of the boom, 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 no matter what you do. And that, that was a, a novelty song that was very big. And then uh, getting towards the rock and roll era, you had uh, The Flying Saucer, 1956, uh, The Purple People Eater in 58. At any given time in the uh, 50s and, and through the first half of the 60s, there was generally at least one or two novelty songs on the radio in the current rotation at the top 40 station. Some some were great, some were mm-hmm. easily forgotten, but the, there, there were a lot of them coming out. And so I was I was introduced to those, and my, my classmates uh, certainly enjoyed the Purple People Leader. So I, I became kind of a fan of those along with all the other kinds of music I was interested in so so I knew that stuff even though it never really went quite to the forefront of my imagination of my thoughts in music until the Dr. DeMetto show came along until mm-hmm. that came into being mm-hmm. but I was a big fan of rock and roll in general especially the rootsier stuff the R&B the rockabilly from the 50s and 60s so uh, Sun Records and all that, and Chess Records. Uh, I, I got, my record budget finally got up to about $3 a week, uh, late 50s. Wow. I usually buy one new record, which would more often than not be something by somebody like Muddy Waters or Jimmy Reed or John Lee Hooker. And uh, then I spent my dollar at the Salvation Army and a dollar at a place that sold records that had been taken off jukeboxes for 19 cents a piece. Hmm. Got a lot of R&B from that place. That's cool. You, uh, after college, um, you graduated with a master's degree uh, from UCLA. And yeah, you... that's what brought me to Los Angeles. Okay. And from there, you began working for a few different record labels, Specialty Records at first and then Warner Brothers. Um, you have read my bio, Ethan. I have. Very good. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Specialty Records worked there for three years, and it was during that time that the Dr. Demento show started. That's when I met uh, Stephen Siegel, Stephen Clean, and uh, began doing guest shots on his show on KRRC, okay. and, the, and then they gave me my own Sunday night shift on KRRC, 
Then I moved over to KMET, which was a bigger, more commercial station. But uh, by that time, the Dr. DeMetto silliness format was fairly well established, and I was starting to get good ratings. So uh, that I stayed KMET for quite a long time. Let's see, about about 15 years. Mm-hmm. So, so you were you were on the radio doing the Dr. Demento show and also working at a record company. Yeah, I, I worked for Warner Brothers. I joined Warner Brothers in 1971. Worked there till uh, '79, doing a variety of behind-the-scenes type jobs. Okay. Uh, they put out my first album while I was there, uh, but I also worked on lots of other albums, uh, not necessarily comical at all. Uh, they had a, a program that they called the Lost Leaders. They put one or two of those out every year. It was a two-LP set, which was a sampler of various new Warner Brothers releases. And hmm. uh, you could buy them. They were mail-order only, and it was $2 for the, the whole full-length uh, two-LP set, a uh, double album, as they'd call them. And uh, so each one would have maybe... Uh, 25 or 30 cuts on it and it would be there'd be some big name artists there'd be Fleetwood Mac and James Taylor and Neil Young people like that and then there'd be all the new artists that Warner Brothers was trying to establish so okay uh, I was given the job of picking the songs and putting them in order and writing notes okay so that uh, I was involved in a lot of different kinds of music uh, through that, and it was fascinating. I enjoyed that work a lot. I also uh, wrote commercials for them. I wrote stuff for uh, little magazines that they put out. I wrote publicity blurbs of all kinds. Uh, I wrote uh, ads for print. I wrote uh, some ads that appeared on the radio, and uh, so did lots of stuff. And Frank Zappa was with Warners for, for part of that time, so got to do a little more work with him. At what point did you start doing the radio show full-time? Well, the radio show kind of became, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say the, the, the radio show started paying enough so that I didn't need to do any, uh, I didn't need to have a day job. That happened in mm-hmm. 1979. Okay. So it took a while to build to the point where, where it could support me because uh, uh, when I was uh, just a guest on Stephen's show, it was for free, and then I started at $25 a week, and it, it gradually worked <laughs> its way up. Right. So it worked its way up into four figures, so at that time I, I could support myself on it. That was pretty early on, I guess, in, your, um, in having the show, doc, the Dr. Demento show, that you met mm-hmm. um, Ali Yankovic. Uh, you spoke yes. at his high school? Right. I did not actually meet him at that time. He was, uh, what, what he, he would have been 13 or 14, and mm-hmm. he said he was too shy to come up and meet me, but uh, he was certainly <laughs> impressed, and it was not long after that that he started sending me tapes. And uh, I liked the tapes. Uh, they, were, they were real good, so I put them on the show, and uh, they got better and better, and... Uh, he, he gradually got to be more and more famous. So, I mean, <laughs> Al's career, Al's early career grew in a series of slow steps. He didn't become famous overnight. Right. It, first it was my show, and uh, then then uh, he put out My Bologna, which got on a few other stations. Another one, Rides the Bus, which got on more stations and uh, made the bubbling under charts in Billboard magazine. And uh, then he got on MTV, and that that started really to make him right. a star it happened bit by bit yeah 
he met John Bermuda Schwartz on your show. Was was That's John? That's true. Yes. Was John right. a comedy musician, or what was he doing? Yes. There? Yeah. Yeah. He had a he had a band too, and he'd made some comedy songs. So he didn't make any commercial records at that time, but uh, he mm-hmm. made tapes, which he'd send to me, just like Al did. And, okay. Uh, it was just it was just pure coincidence that I booked them both for the same show. <laughs> pure coincidence. That's amazing. And uh, that happened to be, uh, Al had just written the song, Another One Rides the Bus. In fact, I'd, I'd spent some time with Al and a bunch of other people earlier that weekend, and he was just finishing up the lyrics to Another One Rides the Bus. He had, used to have a big blue loose-leaf notebook, and he would write lyrics in that. And so every so often we'd see Al sitting in a corner work, uh, writing in that notebook, and what he was doing was writing the lyrics to Another One Rides the Bus. Hmm. Okay. And so he came in to do his guest spot on my show. He'd been a guest on the show before. It wasn't wasn't his first time. But uh, he said, oh, I've got a new song. And uh, he showed me the lyrics so I could make sure that they weren't uh, <laughs> dirty or anything. Of course, right. I, I needn't have worried with Al. But right. uh, uh, in any case, uh, so he said, can I do this song on the show? And I said, yes, you can. So... Uh, He went out into the corridor while I was just playing records, and he went out into the corridor and started rehearsing the song. And at that point, he started talking to uh, John Bermuda Schwartz and uh, found out that John was a drummer and uh, (laughs) asked him, well, why don't you bang on my accordion case and and provide some rhythm? (laughs) So that's exactly what what John did. And uh, so that's how that performance went out over the air and fortunately we had a tape recorder rolling and recorded it in stereo on reel-to-reel tape and that wound up at that actual performance wound up being on Al's first album that's so incredible (laughs) it's such a great song too it's it's amazing with with uh, Al's music how it holds up you know being a parody song of a song that people may not even be familiar with nowadays they can still listen to his older stuff and get a kick out of it. That's right. When did you start he, uh, doing interviews on your show? Oh, it was after a while. I mean, uh, like Al would come in and I'd do like a brief interview with him or other other artists like that. At first it was just uh, they'd do a song live and I'd ask him a few questions. And uh, mm-hmm. then uh, after I started after I started doing the network show, which was in 74... It was a bigger deal. I was with a syndication company, and so we really had a, more of a way of bringing in uh, artists who had made a name for themselves. Uh, my first, let's see, my first interview on the air, I think, that was like that would, would be Doodles Weaver, who was one of the stars of the Spike Jones band. Hmm. He, okay. did the, he did the balm routine that was very famous with Spike Jones. And he was still around in uh, 1973, so uh, he, he came in, and uh, I talked to him for some time on the show and uh, played, of course, uh, some of his famous records. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after I got a, a, a different manager and uh, went, f- went with Westwood One, which at that time was the biggest syndication company in radio, uh, we started bringing in more guests at that time. So like I had... George Carlin on four times. Oh, Frank Zappa was another one of the earlier ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, had him on four times also, and uh, wow. so he was he was maybe the 
third or fourth uh, somewhat lengthy interview that I did with Frank. Who is your most notable or your favorite interview, I guess? Oh, I don't know. George Carlin was on four times, and he was always brilliant, though yeah. sometimes more serious than you might think, because uh, I'd get on with George, and we start talking about what is funny? What makes comedy? <laughs> start start analyzing. That, that's just the way it happened to go with him. Probably the one interview that I was happiest with, how it turned out, uh, was, was John Cleese. Hmm. Wow. He came in. Actually, uh, that was not on the Dr. Demento show originally. That was on the morning show of the station that I was on at the time in Los Angeles. And he had come in to promote uh, the movie A Fish Called Wanda. And somebody got somebody at the station got the idea, well, why don't we have Dr. Demento uh, interview John Cleese? And so they called me about two nights before it happened and said, can you come in uh, <laughs> the morning show and, and talk to John Cleese? And I said, well, sure. So uh, I did. And, and that just uh, it, it really went well. He he had come just to talk about a fish called Wanda and I had seen a screening of it. So I had some questions about that. But uh, we quickly got to talking about his Monty Python career and he was happy to do that. And he wow. seemed impressed with how much I knew about Monty Python. And so it, <laughs> it just went real well. That's great. That's so great. Hmm. Now, um, was was Weird Al ever working on your show I, I think i heard somewhere that he used to answer phones is that true yes yeah he, he was not like a paid employee or anything but uh, uh he would come in when he was living in los angeles like uh, summer during summers when he wasn't going to school mm -hmm. uh, I, i'd say well you can come in and answer phones anytime you want i mean he wasn't a big star he was uh, just right. somebody whose uh, tapes i played on the show and i knew he was real talented but in no way was he a star yet so he was happy to come in, and, and uh, Barnes and Barnes came in, too, sometimes. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, of, of course, the other people who were members of my crew, the, the, my, kind of my first crew members who became well-known, though just on my show, not nationally, Captain Chaos and Jungle Judy. So... They were my first phone answerers, or at least my first that really became well-known. And uh, uh, people, people began having fantasies about Jungle Judy. And she did a couple of appearances with me wearing a leopard skin suit. And uh, so, so that was fun. And then Captain Chaos would dress up like a sea captain. That's a... <laughs> those, those were names that I just hung on them. I mean, oh it was, really? It was Steve. It was Steve and Judy, and I decided I was Doctor Demento. They might as well have uh, funny names too. So that's how they became Captain Chaos and Jungle Judy. When did you start wearing your top hat? Oh, uh, was let's see. I think it was the first time I went to the Grammys, and okay. I needed to rent a tux. And my manager <laughs> said, "Oh, you look great in that." So that's that's how it started. Oh, that's great. It's it's become such an icon. For your career, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, are you still doing interviews on your your current iteration of the Doctor Dramento show? Not as much, but once in a while. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I do a lot of them on the phone using the same setup I'm using right now. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I do. That's how I, I I've done an interview with uh, with Al Yankovic every time he's had a new album. So uh, there was one for the new album too, the newest album mandatory fun 
<laughs> would you have ever expected um, all those years ago that Al would go on to have a number one record? Maybe Mine... not when he first started, but yeah. uh, like I said, his career progressed in steps. And every year he seemed to do something bigger and better and more spectacular than the year before. So it was a, a series of steps. So And I was always happy and delighted with, with each one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, at first there were the homemade tapes, and then there were the slightly more elaborate tapes, and then there started to be videos, and uh, then he started directing his own videos and producing his own albums, and so it just, the Weird Al thing just kept growing. Now, you still have uh, the uh, some of the earlier tapes, including the uh, the infamous Dr. D Superstar song, um, oh, oh, yes, yes. Are those ever, are some of the, the, the ones that haven't been aired ever going to be out there? Is there any kind of plans to uh, release them? Well, we need to stop the interview right there, but we will be back on a future episode with the exciting conclusion to a very young Ethan Allman's interview with the legendary Dr. Demento. I really hope everyone enjoyed hearing that. It is such a special interview to me, and I really look forward to you hearing the rest of it. Now, of course, Dr. Demento still has a weekly radio show, and it's available for you on his website, drdemento.com. So don't forget to sign up and check that out every week. This is a special hamster alert to the Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast broadcast alert system, sponsored by Jack Bateman. All right, Dave, this is our last chance to personally speculate on what's going to happen in Weird the Al Yankovic story because we're seeing the world premiere tomorrow night. Yes, I am so very excited to see the world premiere. But why did you bring it up during the hamster alert? Well, Dave, we all know that the most famous hamster of all is Harvey the Wonder Hamster. So I'm wondering, do you think Harvey will make an appearance in the movie? Ooh, excellent question. You know, I did hear a rumor that the film does have at least two very special people who make a cameo, but I have not heard any rumors regarding cameos of the rodent persuasion. Well, fair enough, but I just don't see how they could possibly not include Harvey somehow. He's almost as important to Weird Al's career as Dr. Demento was. Well, Ethan, you know, that leads to a very interesting question. Who do you think would play the role of Harvey the Wonder Hamster in the film? Well, duh, there's only one choice. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He should play every character in the film. That is all for this episode's very important special hamster alert via the Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast broadcast alert system. Oh, shucks. We've still got four more episodes of this dazzled nonsense. Ugh, let's get it out of the way. This episode is brought to you in part by Discover Dassel, promoting tourism in Dassel, Minnesota. <sighs> Not only is historic Dassel, Minnesota uh, a town, it also totally ripped off Twineball Days. This past weekend, Dassel, Minnesota hosted their 2022 Red Rooster Days. Ooh, the professional wrestler? No, Dave, that would actually be interesting. Instead, Red Rooster Days consisted of an 18-mile bike ride, a 7-mile bike ride, a parade, and a whole bunch of other crap nobody cares about. 
I think that Dassel is just jealous of Darwin because apparently there was also a Red Rooster run, which is five miles long. Ugh! Why would you want to run five miles when you only have to run 3.3 miles in the neighboring and much better town of Darwin with their Twine K race? I know, right? And Red Rooster Days also held the largest chicken barbecue in the state. They're totally trying to upstage the twine ball. I bet Dassel doesn't even have a makeshift pagoda. So visit Dassel, Minnesota on your next expedition. You know, if you really must. And after you visit Dassel, Minnesota, we are obligated to mention that discoverdassel.biz is, you know, also a website, I guess. Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast is brought to you absolutely free thanks to our incredible sponsors, Burrito Burrito, Jackson Scoggins, Jack Bateman, and Mark Heidenreich, as well as the less-than-incredible Discover Dassel. Our podcast is also supported by everyone in our Patreon family, with special thanks to our amazing close personal friend-level Patreon supporters, Rim Jams Jared and Rocky, Javier, Nancy, NES Josh 64, Gus and Alicia, Jake, UH Jeff, Kenneth, Scott, Zeb, Adriana, Ajax, Allison, Blair, Matthew, Mike, and also thanks to William and everyone in our pretty stinking majestic Patreon family. If you enjoy our freakishly fantastic, family-friendly, wonderful, wild and wacky Weird Al podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 2000inch. There are also awesome benefits like getting your name on the podcast, your own private RSS feed, and access to secret episodes. And now would be a great time to join if you have not already, because you'll be the first to hear our The Unfortunate Return of the Ridiculously Self-Indulgent Ill-Advised Vanity Tour concert review bonus episodes. And don't forget to check out our official merchandise over at shop.2000inch.com for all your Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al podcast merchandise needs. We love hearing from our listeners and other Weird Al fans, so be sure to join our Facebook community at group.2000inch.com and then visit our Discord server for even more riveting Weird Al and Red Rump the Goody related conversations. You can find both of them linked on our website, as well as information about past episodes and guests over at weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com. And while you're there, click on Ridiculously Self-Indulgent Bonus Episodes to follow along with our adventures on tour, including Ridiculously Self-Indulgent Bonus Episode 27 Centimeter, when we finally visit the magic, majestic Darwin, Minnesota, and the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota. Or click on Black and White and Weird All Over bonus episodes for our special series where author John Bermuda Schwartz walks us through his first book page by page and picture by picture. Keep up on new episodes, podcast news, and events by following at 2000inch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you for subscribing and leaving reviews on your favorite podcast app. Make sure you are subscribed because not only does it help the podcast, it brings us even closer to solving the mystery surrounding President Kennedy's terrible assassination. And don't forget, we love it when we receive voicemail via our official patent-pending 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline, 347-SPATULA. It's really that number, and yes, you might even hear your message on a future episode. Thank you once again to this episode's guest joining us all the way from 2015, the incredible, legendary Dr. Demento. 
We also want to thank Alternative to Sleeping with Ethan Allman, WCDB 90.9 FM in Albany, New York, Comedy Pipe Radio, Ethan Allman, Javier Valdez, Catherine Bellia, Grammy Award-winning Jim Kimo West, and Ethan's Grandma. And from all of us here at Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al Podcast, a huge congratulations to Chad and Laura Kelson, a.k.a. Metal Al and Metal Wife. Thank you to the Grammy Award-winning Jim Kimo West for incredible podcast theme song, and thank you to Weird Al Yankovic, as this podcast probably would not exist without him. And a big thanks to all of you, our loyal listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters and sponsors, and everyone else who makes our podcast possible. Thank you, as always, for choosing Dave and Ethan's 2008 Weird Al podcast. And until next time, remember to gill and chill. So tell me, Dave, what do you think this big, mysterious Jim Kimo West announcement is? To be honest, I think he secretly wrote a brand new version of our theme song, and it is way too pretty stinking majestic for him to release it. So now he's having second thoughts, and he's trying to come up with something new to announce instead. Wait. You don't think this has to do with the Kennedy assassination, do you? That was Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al Podcast, episode 171-inch. Not your grandma's Weird Al Podcast. This is Dr. Demento, and you're listening to Ethan Ullman on WCDB 90.9 in Albany. Don't forget to stay demented.